Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Winnie Mandicazella Mandela was uncompromising and outspoken. We'll consider how her brand of politics resonates in today's South Africa. A decade ago, David Montgomery scared people with his book about running out of topsoil. Now he gives us hope with a new book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life, will discuss techniques that farmers use to save their dirt. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Winnie Mandikazela Mandela, the South African anti-apartheid activist and former wife of the late President Nelson Mandela, died yesterday at 81. In South Africa, she was known as Mother of the Nation. We're going to talk about her and her legacy with Audrey Brown. She's a South African journalist with the BBC. Thanks for joining us, Audrey. Hello, Jerome. Thank you very much for having me. I wonder if you could tell us, uh, you know, it seems like from in South Africa, her reputation is kind of different than it seems in the United States and the U.S. She looks like a controversial figure. Um, and in South Africa, she looks more like a beloved figure. How, how, does, uh, her, how does her reputation rank there? Well, she's, as in life, she is in death, controversial, stirring up huge passions and very strong emotions in South Africa because really... Mandela was not an ordinary person. She was exceptional in the sense that she was incredibly brave. She was incredibly uh, uh, powerful in her opposition and her implacable resolve to not step back from apartheid harassment, from the torture, from the banishing, from the internal exile, from the, um, the, the arrest, just the general day-to-day hounding that she experienced during the apartheid era. And um, during that time, I think we was very much sort of like a warrior queen to South Africans. And in that time, very many things happened. The context of her life is unimaginable. So people have to remember what South Africa was like and remember that she suffered that harassment since the 50s. And it just got worse and worse and worse. So when 1990 came... Nini Mandela was a war-weary figure created, in a sense, by her commitment to the fight against uh, racial domination and white supremacist thinking, and also misogyny and, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, the kind of patriarchy. Um, and the fact that she was put through the ringer for her beliefs, for all of those things. So... South Africans then and now are debating what Mandela leaves behind as a legacy. You find very much divided. There's a clear recognition of what she went through, what she gave, what was taken from her, um, but also not just what had happened to her, but what also happened on her watch. So South Africans are not um, 
you know, misty-eyed about Winnie Mandela. We're very clear about what she was all about and what she represents to the country. And I can say uh, for most South Africans, and as in so many things in South Africa, most black South Africans and some white South Africans, she represents the very best of uh, South Africa's struggle because she was so implacable and did not surrender. You know, she did not surrender her beliefs. She did not surrender uh, um, her her absolute uh, uh, belief that, that South Africans deserve freedom and dignity. Uh, very many other South Africans, and I must say, lots of white South Africans remember uh, the fact that she, um, at, 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 at the, in the latter days of the apartheid struggle in the late 80s, she was mired controversy. Uh, she was, you know, uh, found guilty or accused of kidnapping and being responsible for the kidnapping and, and, and murder of a young boy that was uh, in, her, in her charge. She was also later uh, in the 90s, uh, rather much later than that, in the 2000s, she was also uh, accused and found guilty of, 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 of fraud and so on. But uh, for the most part, I think that South Africans genuflect today to the memory of Winnie Mandela and what she gave this country. And the fact that South Africa is a free country is very many people give her credit for the role that she played in in, in that happening. Um, also with us is Douglas Foster, and he's from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. His most recent book is After Mandela, The Struggle for Freedom in Post-Apartheid South Africa. Thanks for joining us, Douglas Foster. Good to be with you. Um, how do you read her reputation? Um, it sounds like South Africa has struggled with it, and 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 still she and she's really a beloved figure there, in spite of uh, you know financial scandals in the past and uh, and, and the vigilante group that she had in the eighties. Um, how do you read it? Well, I think everything Audrey said is uh, completely understandable, given given the history. This is the last uh, giant of those years of the struggle against apartheid to, to, to die, and in a way, a passing of a generation uh, that isn't very well known by the vast majority of South Africans who are, who are young. We're 24 years from the first election when uh, Nelson Mandela was elected, 28 uh, years from his release from prison. So I think it's... Um, I think it's uh, natural that the view from inside might be slightly different from the view uh, from the outside, where uh, the respect for her tremendous leadership and bravery and uh, withstanding uh, uh, torture, uh, banishment, and the rest is so highly respected and rightfully remembered is put alongside her her advocacy of necklacing in the late years of the struggle, uh, which meant summary executions of suspected informants uh, and uh, and the operation of uh, of a thuggish group of 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 bodyguards in the so-called uh, football club who uh, who killed uh, uh, young uh, black boys. Uh, in in Soweto, so I think those those parts of the obituaries uh, are cause a kind of whiplash um, for supporters of of the NC and uh, those interested in the struggle in South Africa from around the world, because it's harder to reconcile, uh, as Audrey said, those two parts of the legacy. 
uh, if you don't know the history uh, that she was subjected to. And I think that what she uh, said in an interview in 2013 bears remembering. She said, I am not Mandela's project. I am the product of the masses of my country and the product of my enemy. Uh, I think she put it put it well there. She was the product of the masses uh, of her country, certainly um, did more than any other single person to burnish uh, the, uh, the example and the iconic uh, standing of her husband while he was uh, silent and in prison. Uh, but there are also these other more uncomfortable parts of her legacy that um, you know, we're faced during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to a certain extent, and uh, and will be faced over time, but maybe not on a day uh, so much on a day like today as she's being buried. Um, Audrey, I wanted to get another question into you about um, her beliefs about the ANC today. She said recently that the ANC made a mess of the country. She was withering in her criticism of her, you know, the deal that uh, her former husband cut to uh, bring the country out of the apartheid era. She wanted better land reform, and this was this is an idea that is really resonating today, and people are are actually moving on it. She looks like uh, someone who kind of uh, knew knew something that uh, other people didn't. You know, I, I just want to very quickly address something that Douglas said about um, her legacy outside of South Africa, looking different to what it looks like inside South Africa. I'm really interested to see how many tributes from all over the world are pouring into me and how people uh, uh, understand her understand what she did across the continent of Africa. I remember people asking, and people told me, you know, even today when I, when I travel to other parts and there's some, there was some, you know, bit of information about me in the news or something, people would ask, but why could Mandela not forgive her and he could forgive the apartheid government? And there, there's definitely a, a sense in which she was the victim of a conspiracy and a plot to silence her, to, to, to erase her, to move her aside. And very many people around the world, including in America and in the UK, very many people feel that she has, her rightful place in the world is right up there with all the icons of the apartheid government. And they, in, to some extent, minimize uh, um, the, the more controversial aspects of, 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 of her life, you know, and especially the, the latter part of her life. Um, coming to the today's South Africa and women's attitude to the ANC. I um, spoke to her, I saw her about two years ago at the apartheid, uh, one of the apartheid museums in South Africa in the women's jail where she had been held for many months in solitary confinement where she was, she was not allowed to wash, where she was not, she had, I mean, solitary confinement where they treated her like a dog. She was stripped naked and left there to fester and die. She came out. I can't imagine what what, what any person like that. You know what what would what would you come out as if that had happened to you? And that wasn't the end of her harassment by the apartheid government. So we were sitting in this in this uh, um, jail. It's now one of the uh, the sites at which South Africa memorializes the experiences of women like uh, Winnie Mandela. And um, and it was the first time that she'd actually 
really address it. And her granddaughter was there, and the granddaughter was interviewing her. And I spoke to her a little bit because um, I'm a journalist, and I can take the opportunity. And um, I said to her that one of the things that I was told about her experience, because I worked as a curator at that museum, one of the things I'd been told about would be one of the times in, in 1977 when she was arrested in that jail was that she, um, the, 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 there was a mix of, of, of women who were there for criminal offences and the women there for political offences, and some women were detained, uh, um, you know, without trial. And when Winnie walked into that jail, um, she walked straight through this forbidden part of the jail where, you know, women were only meant to be on their knees and scrubbing and cleaning and shining with uh, uh, the floor of the atrium. And Winnie, in her high heels, walked straight through there. And these women heard this defiant step, you know, through, through, through the jail. And they started urinating and calling. And I said, I would love to have her footsteps, you know, her measured footsteps across the floor of this jail. Because the moment in South Africa at that time was also when um, people were beginning to revisit the issue of uh, uh, um, misogyny and patriarchy within uh, South African society, the high levels of, of, of gender-based violence, and also the controversial uh, reputation and court cases that our previous president had denied. And there was a group of young women that had just gone up to a stage where the president, the then president Jacob Zuma, was speaking, and just uh, uh, evoked the name of the woman that uh, had accused him of rape and, and he had been acquitted. Winnie was very much of that moment as well. Uh, uh, she was the, 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 the party that at the moment in South Africa is advocating or pushing really hard for, for uh, land reform um, is the economic freedom fighters and uh, led by um, Julius Malema who had been expelled from the ANC. Winnie Mandela was very much associated with that demand as well and, and, and that angry, restless passion to move South Africa in a direction that would see genuine change and genuine uh, uh, liberation uh, and, and the changes in people's lives. So she, was, um, she, she wasn't a forgotten figure. She's not in the midst of South Africa's history, uh, as recent as that is for, 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 for somebody who's over the age of 40. Winnie Mandela was very much of the moment still in South Africa. Douglas, I want to get your uh, thoughts about this uh, in the moment in South Africa with her calls for, you know, land reform or connection with the economic freedom fighters and uh, young people still, you know, really that resonated. And for a lot of people in South Africa who haven't seen the ANC government come through for them, they uh, they want something different. And, and the, the kind of winning vision is is there. Yeah, I see. I, I I I do agree with Audrey that she she represents this uh, principled, consistent position. If you think about what she must have been thinking in nineteen in February of nineteen ninety, as she walked with her husband Nelson Mandela out of uh, Victor Vestir prison, it would not have been that it would take four years uh, to get to an election. It would not have been that uh, 28 years, uh, nearly three decades after that, um, after that moment, uh, there would still be a 27% unemployment rate much higher for, for blacks, and that uh, the vast majority of the wealth and land would still be in the hands of a white mi- minority. So I think she, she represents uh, that widespread feeling 
that you would find on the streets in the townships and uh, and lots of places that uh, a certain kind of reconciliation uh, was achieved, a certain amount of truth was unveiled, but not enough justice. And that was the other part of the bargain and the promise of the ANC, uh, especially economic and social justice. I think Audrey's quite right about that. Douglas Foster is from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. His most recent book is After Mandela, The Struggle for Freedom in Post-Apartheid South Africa. And thanks very much to Audrey Brown, South African journalist with the BBC, talking about Winnie Mandikazela Mandela, the South African anti-apartheid activist and former wife of the late President Nelson Mandela, who died yesterday at the age of 81. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with David Montgomery. Ten years ago, his book, Dirt, Scared People About Running Out of Topsoil. Today, his new book, Growing a Revolution, talks about the things that farmers are doing to save their dirt. Stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're going to talk about bringing abundance to our plates in a healthy manner for our community and our civilization. With me is David Montgomery. He is author most recently of Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. He is also the author of the book Dirt about a decade ago. Nice to meet you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Are we running out of dirt and soil? Every once in a while you see an article and it says, we are going to run out of soil eventually and the planet is in peril. You know, uh, that dirt book that you mentioned was one that I wrote a decade ago that touched on that subject. And we won't run out completely of soil, but we are degrading the world's agricultural soils at a rate that's undermining our ability to feed the future. There's a UN report that came out a couple years ago that argued that we're losing uh, 0.3% of the world's agricultural production capacity each year due to soil loss, to losing soil, and soil degradation, sort of losing organic matter and degrading the soil. And 0.3%, it's a small number, right? It's kind of what our bank accounts are making with interest these days. You don't notice it year to year, yep. but it adds up over time. And so that dirt book that you mentioned was looking at ancient civilizations and how they literally plowed themselves out of prosperity by undermining the fertility of their land. We're doing the same thing at a global scale, and we don't really have anywhere else to go this time. Um, so we're not going to run out of dirt. But I think agriculture needs to change so that we can sustainably feed the future. And that's what the more optimistic recent book, The Growing a Revolution, one's all about. How much of our dirt is no good right now? Roughly a third of the world's agricultural land has been taken out of agricultural production since the last ice age. So we've degraded lands like uh, uh, Libya and Syria, places that today are not exactly prosperous hotspots, but for which we have Roman tax records that document large harvests of wheat 
You go there now, and there's no soil left on the landscape. So there's some places you can point to where the damage is really lasting and really bad. Or you could look at the United States, where we've actually reduced the organic matter content of our soil, the amount of carbon and formerly living things, dead things, organic matter, by about 50% at the scale of the nation on an agricultural lands. So we've degraded a fair amount of our of our sort of our natural inheritance of fertile land so far through our long-running agricultural experiment. And we're on track to degrade another third of it in this century, and yet our population is rising. So we need to figure out how to actually grow a lot of food in a manner that rebuilds the fertility of the soil, that regenerates our ability to continue farming. And fortunately, there's ways to do that. Um, it's just not what we typically think of as conventional agriculture these days. Conventional agriculture these days seems to include Roundup or some variation of Roundup. And it seems like the fix is in and everybody's doing it and we cannot break that cycle. Yeah, you know, what I did in writing that Growing a Revolution book was go around and interview farmers who had already restored fertility to their land. And, you know, I'm a geologist by background and training, so I wasn't going to tell farmers how to farm. And I thought I'll go interview people who've already made the transition to a really productive style of agriculture that um, doesn't degrade fertility. And the things they had in common uh, were that they were not disturbing the soil, so they they were not plowing. And a lot of those no-till farmers are also using Roundup. But... These guys were all using cover crops to suppress weeds instead of Roundup or, and using diversity in their rotation. So that those sort of three things, growing more than one or two crops, keeping the land covered with cover crops, and not disturbing the soil with tillage are a combination for promoting the beneficial soil life that can rebuild soil fertility in ways that can get farmers so that they don't need the Roundup. They don't need as much insecticide. So they're not using the herbicides. They don't need as much fertilizer. That saves them money, and they can grow as much in their harvest, which gives them a higher, a better profit margin. It almost sounds like you're describing something that is a smaller kind of farming. If we don't use plows, we can't plow as much. We are into a more permaculture setting that isn't actually applicable for the kind of gigantic farms which we seem to need these days. Yeah, that was one of the questions I wrestled with. Because if you look at permaculture, the kind of style of agriculture that they do is well-suited to small farms. And some of the principles are fairly similar to what I was just mentioning. Yes, they are. Yeah. So I visited you know 20,000-acre farms in the Dakotas. I went to large farms. Uh, I went to big farms in, in Ohio that were, con- that were selling into the North American commodity markets, selling corn, soybeans, and wheat. But that's not all they were growing. So they would grow cover crops in between. And there's technology that allows us to do no-till farming at a very large scale. Sort of the new John Deere uh, no-till planters that allow us to do those 20,000-acre farms, you know, horizon-to-horizon kind of farms. Because I wanted to ask that question of can these ideas and practices or these principles scale? And what I found is the kind of practices you would use on one of those large farms are very different than the practices you would use on a small-scale, say, permaculture farm. But the principles that the farmers were following – were very similar. They were just figuring out different ways to adapt them to their scale and to use technology as well as the sort of the wisdom of crop rotations and uh, diversity and keeping the ground covered with cover crops. And if you look back at ancient societies, over-reliance on the plow was what really undid a lot of soil fertility. But cover crops, crop rotations, those are old ideas. Those are not new ideas. They were traditional in societies around the world because they worked to help sustain the fertility of the land. But if you're tilling it, if you're plowing it regularly, you're undoing all that good. It just took a while for it to unravel. 
Uh, what we have the opportunity to do now is to take the ancient wisdom of crop rotations and diversity of rotations and even having livestock on land that would then grow crops out of the whole uh, manure cycling aspect and combine that ancient wisdom with the modern technologies that allow us to do no-till. And that could be things like a cover crop crop roller instead of an herbicide, getting more ecologically minded in the sequencing of crops. So you actually use your cover crop to suppress weeds, which replaces the herbicide. There's some very innovative farmers out there who've figured out very effective ways to integrate this system. I'm talking with David Montgomery. He's the author of Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. He's a professor at the University of Washington and the College of Environment. Can you give us an example of a farmer who is doing this and how much he uses herbicide or how much he uses a tractor? And uh, I, I yeah, can't sure. envision it. Yeah, there's a gentleman that I visited named David Brandt who lives near Carroll, Ohio, who is a really good example of one of these what I like to call organic-ish farmers because he's a conventional farmer in the sense that he's growing conventional crops for the conventional commodity market, but he's doing it in unconventional ways. And his big sort of secret, which he's happy to tell anybody about, is that he's planting very diverse mixes of cover crops in his rotation. So if you go out in his fields and there's not corn or wheat or soybeans standing in it, there's 10 or 12 different species uh, that kind of looks almost even like a wildflower field or a native prairie. But he's planted things like turnips and brassicas and a whole diversity of plants that are there to feed the microbial life in the soil, to feed the fungi and the bacteria in the soil. And so he'll kill those with a crop roller and he just lets it rot. And so he's, he's using those cover crops to extract nutrients from the subsoil, get them into the cover crop. Then he kills the cover crop, lets it rot. That takes those nutrients and puts them into the topsoil. So he's a, sort of using the cover crops to plow his land. And that fertilizes his next cash crop. So he ran me through the economics of his farm and his neighbor's conventional farms. He's using less than half the diesel. He's using about a eighth of the nitrogen fertilizer and less than a fifth of the Roundup. And he was experimenting from when I interviewed him a couple of years ago with the idea of just not using any fertilizer and in some plots not using any herbicide. He's basically moving towards almost using no agrochemicals. And his yields are higher than his conventional neighbors because he's rebuilt the health of his soil. His, the soil he started with was kind of a beach sand khaki color back in the early 70s when he started experimenting with no-till and then getting cover crops now. Now what he has is really rich black earth. It's really huh. healthy soil. And it's getting all that carbon back in the ground. That color difference is all carbon. And how is he keeping out the weeds? It sounds like if you're turning over turnips or radishes or whatever you're doing – you're still going to get weeds, and he's still got some Roundup in there. Well, he's not turning over the weeds. Uh, there's a thing called a roller crimper that's like a steamroller with chevrons, metal chevrons on it. And you know how if you take a straw and you bend the straw, it doesn't work very well anymore? You've crimped the stem of the straw. Plants are like that. So if you take your cover crop and let it grow in between your cash crops, and you're in a place where a roller crimper will work, and you can basically put one of those crimpers on the front of your tractor – and put a no-till planter on the back of your tractor, and you just roll right over the cover crops, knock them down, crush the stems, and you plant right into that crop residue. Ah. So the surface is never bare, so you don't get erosion, and you don't have that blank slate for weeds to come in on. And so the trick is you kill the cover crop before it goes to seed, and in which case I like to think of it as you've planted a bunch of weeds, but you don't let them mature. You kill them before they go to seed, and eventually you'll burn through the seed bed from the weeds that were from whatever you were doing before. 
And if you're planting right through it, your seeds come up first. And once they get up, if you get some weeds that grow in beneath your crop, as long as they're not stealing solar energy from your crop, if they're below, as long as you kill them later, all they're doing is getting nutrition out of the subsoil and putting it into biological circulation. So that's tomorrow's fertilizer. All right. That makes perfect sense. Now, this guy... I imagine his neighbors have all seen what he's done and decided, man, I cannot wait to get rid of my Roundup and buy in so much diesel. Uh, One of the things I ran into with a lot of farmers I visited who had adopted these innovative practices and figured out sort of a new way of doing things is they're met with initial skepticism. It's like, oh, the crazy guy doing no-till or the crazy guy doing cover crops, you know, thinks he can get off of the things that everybody else is telling us we need to buy from them. So there's sort of a natural reticence to change. Um, That's one of the big obstacles to adopting these new practices are that one of the hardest things to get anybody to do is to change their habits, uh, whether on a daily basis or on a professional basis or the way you farmed relative to the way your parents farmed. We don't like to change very much, and I'm as guilty of that as anybody. Um, But what I found really effective was that eventually, if you're making a significant amount of money while your neighbors are losing money, they start to pay attention after a while. And what I saw was this pattern of like the guy that used to be the crazy guy. He's actually got a new truck and he built a new barn. And, you know, maybe he's not so crazy after all. And one of the things that really helped with the dissemination of that kind of information was their examples, but also demonstration farms. If you can see a farm where these new practices of conservation agriculture, of not tilling, planting cover crops and growing a more diverse crop rotation, if you can see it work at scale on somebody else's farm, it's a way to – think that you're not running a huge risk if you start to transition and maybe run an experiment on part of your farm and grow it out for the whole thing. Do a lot of farmers look at what you're describing and say, it's too complicated. Man, this Roundup stuff, easy as pie, and I can do it and I can get more stuff in the land and I can make up, maybe you get a little more produce, but I get more. Well, the one part of that that I think is true is that it is easier. Because, you know, you put a gene into a crop that lets it survive when you apply Roundup, and then you put Roundup on Roundup will kill anything. It's a really good herbicide. Doesn't mean it's good to put on your fields, but it's very effective at what it's intended to do. And that makes for really easy weed control. So it's kind of like the easy button for large-scale agriculture, and especially if you're going to go to no-till because of that weed problem. But one of the things that actually turned me into a bit of an optimist on this, because when I finished writing that dirt book, it was looking back at the story through ancient societies. It's kind of hard to find the silver lining. There's lessons to be learned, but there's not a lot of great examples of people following them. Um, but when I realized in talking, in interviewing farmers who had adopted this full suite of three practices based on those three principles, um, they were more profitable. Because there's not much of a yield difference between GMO crops and non-GMO crops. You look at the New York Times had a great article I think about a year ago where if you look at the increases in crop yields in Europe where they don't allow GMOs versus the United States where where many of our primary commodity crops are GMOs, the increase in yields plot right on top of each other. You can't really tell the differences between the curves. So it's been traditional crop breeding that has increased yields over the last 30 years. The real advantage of the Roundup Ready stuff has been that it makes for easy weed control. So that is an issue. Um, But if you spend less money, so you're not buying the Roundup, you're not buying GMO seeds, you're not buying as much in the way of fertilizer, but you're growing a harvest that's comparable. And all the farmers that I visited, once they'd restored fertility to their land, their yields either were comparable or outcompeted their conventional neighbors. 
David Montgomery. He's the author of Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. He is also the author of the book Dirt about a decade ago. Coming back after the break, we'll have more with David Montgomery. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. We're talking about soil with David Montgomery. He's the author of Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. He's a professor at the University of Washington's College of the Environment. He's a MacArthur Genius Grant. He also wrote a book called Dirt uh, about 10 years ago that caused quite a stir, made a documentary out of it and all the rest. So we were talking about why a farmer would want to keep using herbicide and Roundup. And it seems like the economics equation of that, I mean, it's easy is the short answer, but there's a lot of corporations who want farmers to keep doing things the way they're doing them and have kind of created a model for them to do this. And the economic driver is there for them. Do big corporations kind of get to win over the small guy who has an example of a no-till farm with cover crops? Well, if we look back at sort of what's happened since the Second World War as the backdrop against which we can think about that, you know, American farmers, when they started to specialize in sort of one or two crops on a farm and we separated animal husbandry from cropping, farmers got really good at producing a large amount of single crops off of a farm. And one of the things that did is it fed the American commodity markets for corn, soybean, and wheat, which drove the price the farmers get for those down. So they were essentially penalized for being so good at growing so much of what little they were now growing that the return on it went down. And at the same time, all the inputs that the system of farming they were advised to use based on intensive fertilizer use and large-scale agrochemical use and then eventually GMO seeds and a lot of Roundup for certain crops – Um, the cost of those inputs all went through the roof, and not to mention the cost of diesel over the last 50 years. So farmers are kind of caught in this squeeze play between the the corporations that are selling them the inputs that they need on the front end, and they're quite profitable, and the corporations that are buying their harvests on the back end, which are quite profitable, but the farmers are getting low prices for the stuff they spent a lot to grow. They're the ones that are squeezed in the middle. And the way I sort of look at the history of post-Second World War farming That's one of the big unacknowledged sort of patterns that played out. And I found a deep well of interest among farmers when I went to interview them for Growing a Revolution that if they could figure out ways to spend less on herbicides, spend less on diesel, spend less on fertilizer, but still grow just as much, and they could do it by adopting practices that are under their control, it gives them some leverage over that margin being so narrow. And if they can drop their costs, they can basically increase their profit margin. But as you're intimating – the companies that are selling them all those inputs aren't going to be exactly lining up to advise them to adopt practices that would enable them to use less of their products. I think most people, um, probably a lot of people, have lawns here, and we're all advised to 
put a lot of chemicals on our lawns. It's almost like the same thing. Where <laughs> it's very much it's, the same thing. Uh, you know, and there's only, here's your model, here's your good outcome, and we're going to keep doing it until all the chemicals are gone <laughs> because somebody's making a buck and something is on our television saying you should have a green lawn. Yeah, when we bought our house in North Seattle, and we wrote a book in between the ones that you mentioned, and it was called The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health. And the story there is when we bought a house in North Seattle, it came with a lawn that I like to call an old-growth Seattle lawn. It was a you know a single species of grass, one of these nice North American lawns. And my wife was a gardener. She wanted a more elaborate garden. So we peeled off that lawn. There wasn't a single worm living in it. There was no life, absolutely no life that we could detect living in the real dirt that was our soil. And over time, reintroducing organic matter to a yard, we brought it back from less than a 1% organic matter content up to about a 10% organic matter content in the soil in our yard. And one of the things that we did in doing that was to plant a lawn that was called an eco-lawn. It was a seed mix of four different species of cool and warm season grasses and forbs. So there's multiple species that come in and out through the course of a year, but we don't have weed problems now on our lawn because the ecological dynamics of those four species coming in and out basically suppress weeds. And we haven't fertilized it. We haven't done anything to it. And it looks just as nice as our neighbor's lawns. But if you look up close, it's not just one species. So there's other ways to think about using these same principles of diversity, for example, in lawn care and lawn maintenance that could give you a lawn that doesn't have those chemicals on it but still looks really nice most of the time. All right, but the chemicals are easier, and that's just like the farms. In the farm, it is easier to dump the chemicals on it if that's what you're after. Yeah, well, except with the lawn that we have at our place, all we do is mow it. So you don't have to dump the chemicals on it. Yep, so it's actually easier. Once you get the right species mix and you're letting the biology do the work for you, it's more cost-effective, and it can be easier. With the farming example, it's more difficult to think about how to do conservation agriculture in the sense that um, you have to think about how to sequence a rotation. There's actually deliberation and thought and ecological, in the scientific sense, wisdom that goes into planning a rotation because, you know, what you plant after each other at which time in which climate and how it dovetails onto which markets for actually – because, you know, farms need to stay in business, so you have to actually be able to sell your crop. I mean, that stuff is all not simple. And so complexity does come in there. But those are manageable systems. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with David Montgomery. He's the author of Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. And we're talking about how to do that. Do you have a vision of what – the outcome here is like, does Monsanto become like this uh, little shop that doesn't really sell a lot of stuff anymore? And do all the farms uh, almost become organic farms? And well, you know, I, I started teasing a number of the farmers I visited who were conventional farmers. And I also visited some organic farmers. These methods can help make organic farms more sustainable because the, the farming that did in the Roman Empire was organic agriculture. So there's problems with long-term degradation under organic that need to be addressed as well. Um, but the conventional farmers I visited, I started teasing that they were organic, becoming organic-ish farmers, were ones who were very receptive to that, but who would never actually be organic farmers. That was just not what they wanted to do. But I sort of view the prioritizing soil health as the foundation for our agriculture, as what hopefully will be the next agricultural revolution, 
we've gone through four by my count at this point. You know, the idea of farming in the first place was revolutionary. Then we figured out cover crops and crop rotations in different societies around the world. Then we mechanized and industrialized in the 19th century. And then the whole green revolution and the ongoing biotechnology revolution would, would be the fourth revolution agriculturally in my mind, the way at least I number them. And I think prioritizing soil health could be a comparable fifth agricultural revolution that is not inconsistent with using all the modern technology that we have at our disposal. So, you know, microbial inoculants, and that's an area that Monsanto, for example, is moving into as they see as a real business opportunity to try and develop biological inoculants that could help kickstart the biology and serve as a replacement for some of their other products. So I what, think what that, are those biological inoculants? Oh, uh, mycorrhizal fungi. So fungi that can partner with plants and get mineral nutrients out of the soil and into the plant or nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And you can imagine the idea of inoculating corn seeds with microbes that once the corn sprouts – partner with the plant and they capture nitrogen from the atmosphere and trade it to the plant in exchange for sugars that the plant can manufacture through photosynthesis. Uh, those kind of symbioses. And many plants have those kind of symbioses already, but not all of our major crops do. And so you could imagine the, the making a case for um, using new technology to develop applications like that. So I actually don't think that the sort of agrotechnology business is ever going to go away. I don't think we're going to go back to, you know, 17th century organic farming. Um, I don't think we'd want to. I think we'd be less productive. But I think that you're marrying the ancient wisdom of crop rotations and diversity and things that build soil health with the modern technologies that we have at our disposal that could be revolutionary for the future of agriculture and make it more sustainable, make it more environmentally friendly. And the book that Ann and I, my wife and co-author on The Hidden Half of Nature, are working on now is trying to look at connecting soil health to human health. Do practices that build soil fertility translate into food that actually helps support human health better? I think the answer is going to be yes. You know, that's kind of my suspicion too. <laughs> <laughs> the whole idea of um, the Green Revolution – People debate whether it was successful or not or harmful. Yeah. Some people seem to think it should never go away and we should just keep green revolutionizing. And how do you feel about the term and the idea? Boy, it's a real, it's a real interesting and controversial one. Uh, and there's lots of ways that you can argue the pros and cons on it. What I see in it is that we kind of made a strategic mistake at the time that we went all in in the developed world on the green revolution and then exported it to the developing world. And that mistake was that we thought that the only problem with feeding the world was growing enough food, that it was all about yield. It was growing high volumes of food and making sure everybody had enough to eat. And there's nothing wrong with doing that, making sure nobody goes hungry. That should be a priority. But we forgot about the part that we need to grow nutritious food as well that we need to nourish the world, not just feed the world. And when you look at the crop breeding that went into the Green Revolution technologies, we were basically breeding crop varieties that were not as good at taking up mineral nutrients from the soil or that were diluting them by growing more seed heads on the same plant. You're basically taking what it took out of the soil and dividing it into smaller pies. And it's a well-documented decline in nutrient density in food since the Second World War to the present day. Uh, one of the factoids that was thrown around at the Good Food Expo this morning that I was at was that, you know, that broccoli today has about a quarter of the calcium that broccoli did around the time of the Second World War. So huh. to get the same amount of calcium, sort of a critical nutrient, you'd have to eat four times the broccoli. And whether or not you love broccoli, that's a lot of broccoli. 
And so what I think we really need to do is sort of rethink the Green Revolution, not necessarily undo it, but rethink it and try and reprioritize to bring back the idea of, of soil health in combination with our technology so that we can keep our crop yields up but get the nutritional value of the food back to where it was to get the micronutrients and the plant-based phytochemicals back into our food as a foundation for good health. So the guys who are doing what you say about no plow and cover crops, uh, are they getting more nutrients into their vegetables? You know, uh, when I was writing Growing a Revolution, most of the farmers that I interviewed claimed they were growing more nutrient-dense food. And I actually believe them, but I wanted to see the data. They're now starting to collect data and to try and demonstrate that. There's studies that lead you to believe that that would be the case. And there's a few studies that people have shown that to be the case. But I think we need an awful lot more data to be sure and to know which practices are actually getting us there. But the preliminary results that I've seen suggest that there's a lot to that, um, both in terms of the mineral micronutrients, things like uh, you know zinc and copper, things that we don't think of as that we need a lot of, like those are metals, right? <laughs> but we need some of them to support our enzyme functioning. We need that to be in our food because our biology depends on that for our own health. Um, iron, uh, another good example. Yeah, we basically need to restore the biology that scientists have shown is the vector through which a lot of those mineral nutrients get into plants. And there's this whole other area in terms of phytochemicals, chemicals that plants make, literally is the name, that our gut microbiome ferments and turns into metabolites that are actually very beneficial for our own health. And what Ann and I wrote about in The Hidden Half of Nature was sort of the way that the soil science had evolved to the point where we could understand how nutrition mineral elements were getting into plants, but then also understand what our own bodies we're doing through the breakdown of the foods we eat, particularly the plant foods, the complex carbohydrates, what your doctor calls fiber. That's what your gut microbiome ferments, and it really bolsters our health. And yet, what did we do to the Western diet in the second half of the 20th century? We reduced our fiber intake and increased our simple sugar intake. We starved our microbiome. And that's been shown to be sort of a contributing factor to a whole wide range of chronic illnesses that increasingly plague people. Now, the degree to which you could undo all that with diet, that's still controversial. We're going to wrestle a bit with that in the new book. But the idea that we need to feed the microbiome in the soil with organic matter to grow healthy plants and the idea that we need to feed our own microbiome with organic matter, otherwise known as fiber-rich plant food, they're pretty solid foundations for thinking about how to maintain health, not necessarily how to cure things, but how to maintain a healthy body. It sounds like you've come to a place where you are optimistic about health and <laughs> crops and dirt. Um, and it didn't exactly look like that was exactly where you were going to end up uh, 10 years ago when you were uh, writing sad things about the history of agriculture. You're absolutely right. I never imagined when I was writing The Dirt Book that I would write an optimistic sequel 10 years later. But that's one of the powerful things about visiting farmers who've already done it. And you can take a shovel out to their fields, look at what they've done to restore their land. And it's not a theory. It's not abstract. It's very concrete. It's very real. And if they can do it on their farms, I've got to believe that more farmers could do it on their farms. And so I, I have come to a much more optimistic place. You know, whether or not we'll follow through and embrace a soil health revolution as the next agricultural revolution, well, we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out. As you mentioned earlier, there's powerful forces that may not be all that thrilled. On the other hand, I think that many of them could find real new business opportunities 
in trying to promote things that build soil health. And one of the best things I think we could do for rural economies in North America is rebuild the financial health of family farms, which this idea of maintaining outputs while reducing input costs would allow us to do. So there's some real major economic advantages, I think, that we could harvest down the road, if you'll pardon the pun, um, from going this route. Well, it's uh, good to hear some optimistic things about farming and and about the soil. David Montgomery is the author of Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. He was also author of Dirt 10 Years Ago and also The Hidden Life of Nature. We've talked about as well, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health. Thanks a lot for joining us, David, and good luck in the future. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's been 50 years since MLK was assassinated. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about the radical, pro-peace, anti-war, anti-poverty message that Martin Luther King was promoting towards the end of his life. We're going to hear an excerpt from a speech he gave at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And then we're going to talk with author Vijay Prashad about some of the applications that that message has in today's world. So hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Did you know that you can listen to Worldview whenever and wherever you want? Subscribe to the Worldview podcast in the iTunes store, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, or click subscribe at wbez.org slash worldview. Check out the Worldview podcast. Thanks to Steve Bynum and Julian Haida for producing the program. Anna Waters and Galilee Abdullah provide production assistance and Mike Gilmore engineered. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.